There are days when you are just not feeling it. Days where you feel like you've lost your mojo. If you're looking to get it back, then you've tuned to the right station. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. I got my mojo working, but it just won't everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you in the house. Thank you for joining us. That was a rock and roll way to start the show. Uh, Robbo, that's a new intro, mate. What's the uh, what's the track? Mate, our good mates, the Daisies, the Dead Daisies, have a new album out in August. Oh that's uh, And that's the first single that's coming off it called Long Way To Go. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I thought say, it was I'm going to say, name. just in first listening, mm. uh... It does sound like good Aussie rock. Well, there's a bit of an Angel's influence in there if you go back to our good mate uh, David Lowy, who um, was one of the co-writers of that track and apparently... And a guest on the show. And a guest on the show, absolutely. And he took some influence from Doc Neeson on that one. So um, it is a bit Angel-esque, the riff, yes. You can kind of hear a little Angel's um, in it, but I'll tell you what, the one thing that strikes me at this is that any Dead Daisies track is Karabi's vocals. Man, that guy's got a set of lungs on him. He does indeed. He's got a massive set of lungs and um, in fact he'll be exercising that set of lungs on the show in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah. We got a call from um, from the band's management and um, John wanted to catch up and have a bit of a chat about the new album so who am <sighs> I to say no? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well that's, uh, that's something to look forward to. The Absolutely. other guy I'd really like to catch up with is the bass guitarist Marco Mendoza mm. talking about sobriety and his 20-year trek down that uh, down that laneway because that was the Daisies interview we did, folks. For those people who are new to the show, uh, six, eight, nine months ago, we actually sat down in a hotel room and spoke to the Dead Daisies whilst they were on tour with Kiss. Mm. And we spoke to Marco Mendoza and John Carabi. had a fantastic show. And I must say, one of our highest-rating shows of all time. And uh, we also previewed one of their singles they released, which was with our own Jimmy Barnes. And uh, we had the worldwide exclusive preview rights to that. So we've got a bit of a history with the band. We love chatting with them. So it'd um, be good to get the boys back on again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will be doing that in the next couple of weeks. And um, I'm sure if we twist Marco's arm, he might sit down and spend a bit of time talking about his experience with sobering up and all that sort of stuff, for sure. Excellent. Now, just before we rip into our Olympic thinking show, uh, I frocked up on the weekend. Gary's 20 cents worth. Did you now? <laughs> That's a bit <laughs> of an ugly mental image, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> I still wore my cowboy boots, but I did put a proper suit and, uh, and a neck brace on wow. to go to... I went to a ball. Right. And it was called the Snowball at Star, which is a big casino here in Sydney. Mm. And it was put on by a lady called uh, Dominic Robinson from uh, Robinson Legal. And Dominic is a ball guru. It was called the Snowball. And the proceeds from the ball went to the Tour de Cure, which is a charity that I'm involved with. And what was really exciting, Rob, I was on the night, in one single night, in Dom's Snowball, she raised $1.25 million. Wow. So let's just say, mate, that it was, uh, it was a, a, a very prestigious event with the right yeah, people in the room. Absolutely. And what was really quite a takeout for me to sitting and taking it all in 
is that, I mean, the entertainment was Justice Crew, all the Channel 7 Sunrise crew were there. Paul Hogan spoke, who was brilliant, who's um, Mick Dundee is one of our best known <laughs> icons worldwide. Yeah. Uh, but there were 80 odd volunteers. So people wow. in the room who were volunteering to help with the auctions and the serving and the champagne bar and stuff were all two to cure volunteers. Wow. But then you also had the people who were frocked up, who were yep. donating enormous amounts of money all for a very good cause. Mm. And it was just evident that everybody can contribute to a, a cause either by their time, their effort, their energy, their thinking, and or financially. Mm. And uh, what was really gratifying is by the time the night closed, the, the Tour de Cure has now raised 25 point something million dollars since 2007. Wow. For uh, helping to find a cure for cancer. So it, uh, it was a pretty good night all in all. And uh, I must say that I was pretty happy to get home and get that tie and the suit off. And get back <laughs> in the jeans. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but listen, what's, um, what's $25 million buy in the way of results for cancer research these days? Well, in the, in the history of our tour uh, since we started, we have funded some 250-odd projects around Australia, which mm. can be everything from funding a wig library to funding a sequencing machine to go into a laboratory to sequence proteins. It's like, you know, the, the machinery and stuff. Yeah. To financing a chair that can be used in a rural hospital to help people who are going through treatment with chemo and so on. So it's okay. wow. wide and varied in support, prevention mm. um, and research. Mm. And there are over 200 odd different projects. But in addition to that, we have now visited some 100,000 children around Australia face to face to talk about how cancer works and what can be done to prevent it. And we've given them all a book that we've published. And in any man's language, a hundred odd thousand would be a bestseller mm. many times over. Mm. Uh, and in addition to that, we have got 18 published, which is peer reviewed, official global published breakthroughs that wow. will now are in the process of becoming a reality to help us find a cure for you know all sorts of different cancers. So- Oh, that's nice. What does 25 million get you? To be honest with you, not a lot mm. in terms of the grand scheme of things because mm. we need probably, you know, a hundred times that. Yep. However, uh, the Tour de Cure in its own little way is certainly a significant stepping stone to, to helping to do its part to, you know, find a cure and to help people with research and the prevention and the cure of cancer yep. for, uh, for you and I, mate. So there you go. That's what it gets you. Well, congratulations to you and your buddy, mate. That's an awesome effort, I reckon. Maybe that's gold. <laughs> that's gold. <laughs> that's gold. The Mojo Radio Show. Speaking of gold, should we introduce our gold medal uh, Olympian? I think we should. Nice segue. On the 2016 Tour de Cure, we had somebody in the peloton riding with us who was a three-time Olympic gold medalist. He's a very, very well-known sports personality in Australia. He's now straddling his time between the sporting arena doing coaching and and assistance and the corporate world where there's a lot of training, facilitating and strategic work with uh, leading Australian corporate companies. And I've got to say above all that, Robert, he's just a top bloke. When he, he goes nice through guy. top Australian blokes, Drew Ginn is way at the top of that list. So mm. we're delighted to have him back on the program. Drew Ginn, welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show, buddy. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. <laughs> 
It's good not to have a uh, microphone, a uh, phone stuck in my face. (laughs) (laughs) But sadly, Drew, after we finish this conversation, I can't promise you a Maxi Bond. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to walk down the street myself. Oh, are you a Maxi Bond fan? I'm so with you. (laughs) Oh, love them. Love them. My favourite, top of my list. That was, in fact, that was my birthday treat on Saturday. Yeah, thank you. I wasn't saying it for that. I was just saying no, that's, about yes. how, that's about how often I get them. Yeah, no. <laughs> he, throws that, he throws that line to the Olympians like, oh, oh mate, uh, no. <laughs> at, at the pub tonight. Yeah, I had uh, Drew Ginn ring and uh, wished me happy birthday, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, that's Gold right. Gold yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Talking to Buzz from Ganga Jang the other day, you know. Yeah, drop the name. Drop a name. <laughs> so let's get into it. Drew, um, judging by the downloads, as I said on the program, it's fair to say that our audience is very interested in Olympic thinking. We've had a few Olympians on from different specialties, and it just seems with the audience that we have for the Mojo Radio Show, this is a topic that they find quite fascinating. Being somebody who has been there and done that in the Olympics and had great success and then now straddles himself into the corporate world, what would you say is probably the main characteristic that defines Olympic thinking in your mind? I think, um, yeah, to provide an answer, I mean, it's a difficult one. To provide an answer, probably the thing that comes to mind mostly is just that, that, that commitment and that follow-through. I think when I think of most of the athletes that I've seen go to the games over you know, 18 plus years, it's not it's not the immediate short-term success, it's not the, the one-off moment, it's as much as the games is every four years, it's their commitment to keep getting up the next day and, and keep following through on the, either the plan or the agreements they've had with each other or, or the agreement and the commitment they've had for themselves. And so I think when I look corporately at the people who are doing very, very well and, and I get a, you know, a lot of opportunity to see who in a facilitator um, perspective or role and also a coaching uh, role. And, and the thing that I notice is the ones who are doing well, they've got the ability to just keep persisting at things, um, keep bouncing back, stay committed to either the plan. And now I know plans have to change and athletes are very good at that as well. But I think it's, I think it's the follow-through and it's, and it's the commitment to something that's more long-term that will achieve the success. The last time you and I spoke, we had turned the mic off and we were just walking down the street and we started on a conversation about emotions, which is one of the prime reasons I wanted to get you back on the show to sort of delve into this. Is, is there a process? So the successful people you've seen in the corporate world and business that are able to persist over a period of time, they've got to be able to handle the emotional highs and lows, I would think, um, whether it be you know, in sport or business, uh, family or in, in general life. What processes have you observed or used yourself to be able to handle those highs and lows uh, in, in an emotional sense? Oh, look, I think that's, that really comes down to first being aware of oneself and being aware of, I suppose, the dynamic that's at play. And, and I think that the roller coaster that any high performer is on um, means that they'll naturally you know, have those high points and have those points where they're building up to something pretty important and have those low points. The, the, the biggest thing that I've sort of come at it in terms of my understanding is you've got to have sort of routines and strategies and some tactics in place to deal with that. I think when you're fully charged and you're immersed and committed to something, almost that obsessive sort of nature to to get the job done, um, I think there's got to be a a contrast to that. And and I think the the good performers that perform long-term, both corporately or in sport, um, you know, the burnout rate, unless they get um, some sort of balance right, and I don't mean balance being it's in perfect harmony, but rather 
they have an outlet of some sort, they have a hobby or they have routines on a daily or weekly basis of which they, they get to let the valve off a little bit. Um, I think the unhealthy habits are the ones that are destructive, not only for athletes but also in the corporate space. But I think the really good performers over a long period of time learn how to moderate themselves. Um, they learn how to use their energy at the appropriate time. But they, they, I suppose they really learn how to not spin their wheels. So an example for me was as a young athlete, you know, I, I spent a lot of time nervous energy or worry or processing um, a lot about what was coming up. And I remember vividly going through the, the 90s period and trying to project forward, trying to um, uh, anticipate, almost speculate about what might happen. But there was a lot of energy involved in that and a lot of stress. Um, and ultimately, you'd have these moments where you just hit the wall emotionally. You hit the wall because you'd been on that roller coaster. And I think later on in my career, what I became much better at was actually managing uh, those moments in time where you had to be fully energised um, and, and getting the offset to that. Vividly, I remember going through the Beijing Olympic Games with Duncan Free, and the routine for me was um, much clearer, um, and, and I was much better at managing myself um, and realising that when I was fully charged, there was going to have to be a discharge period, I suppose, in that sense. And uh, and if there were moments where I was feeling flat and de-energised, I had to find things personally for myself that it would actually re-energise or reinvigorate, re- refresh. And so awareness for self, I think, is critical for those performers. And um, the best athletes, if they last long enough, and the best people in the corporate space who perform well enough over a long enough period, I think, learn those routines, learn those strategies and learn how to manage themselves better. A moment's coming up for either an athlete or, or a business athlete, a moment's coming up and you talked about the ones that can succeed, the ones that manage their ease, manage their energy and are able to bring it at the moment when it's important. Talk me through how an athlete like yourself, you're at the games, you've trained now for four, or in some cases people have trained for two games for eight years to get to a certain moment. Tell me the process or systems that you used or you observed in others that were the most powerful. Yeah, Gary, I think the thing for me, and I'll, I'll sort of um, use an example around Mike Mackay, the original awesome foursome, and what I saw in him was someone who was highly active at looking at the past experience um, and trying to understand where the gaps were, where the overlaps were, um, looking at the past experience, working out whether whether the good things that worked and the things that didn't work, um, highly active at going back in time or into memories, also highly active at going forward as well um, and going forward in terms of sort of trying to map out the scenarios and the goods and bads of how things would work. The challenge with that that I saw with Mike in particular was because he spent so much time in forward and, and rear projection, I suppose, in that sort of sense, it meant that at times it was hard for him to get back in the moment and just let all that be. Um, what I heard him say a lot of is, you know, we do everything we possibly can to be 100% prepared. Now, that didn't mean that every single day was perfect. But also in that, what I think the training that I noticed with him was that when it came time, his exercise, and he used a Bunker quote, I think Bunker's, uh, Sergei Bunker was uh, the pole holder, yeah. and his coach uh, had a quote for him, which is, if not now, when? If not, me, who? You know, and, and Mike actually wrote, uh, me and now, um, on his foot stretcher in the 1996 Olympic Games and I reckon that was the symbolic reminder of all the past now doesn't matter and all the possible futures don't matter but rather get in the moment, do the things that are going to do that. And the, the thing in a sporting sense, and I, I learned this obviously hearing guys like Mike talk a lot about the preparation was doing everything from understanding how um, your past experience can help support you but it can also hold you back. 
and then also understanding how the speculation of the future can give you a great sense of possibility, but can also stop you from jumping forward and having a, a leap of faith to things. So the, the balance to all that is making sure you can keep practicing and getting in the here and now. And the simple exercise for me uh, on the water has always been stick my hand in the water. Yeah, and if I stick my hand in the water or I touch the boat or I feel the oar and I pay attention to my foot stretcher or I notice my breathing, all of a sudden I can't be anywhere else. You know? So those thoughts of forward and those thoughts of behind and even those thoughts of positive and negative um, judgment about the experience, they disappear very, very quickly. And even if you put your hand in the water and you think, oh, that's cold, that's bad, you've got to catch yourself straight away to say, hold on, no, it's just water. And it's just a temperature and it's not good or bad. And so I think what Mike had as a symbol for him was, you know, this message in front of him to remind him that you've done all this great work in preparation for. And my one was very much the physical uh, kinesthetic thing of, you know, feel the water, feel the oil handle, notice my breath, notice the things around. So sitting on the start line, I remember this vividly in 1999, and just looking around and being with James Tompkins and sort of going, how cool is this? Like all this stuff is here for <laughs> us as athletes to do what we do. So the nervousness for me um, was, was a natural anxiety for what was going to be required of you. But the nervousness only ever came, the anxiety only ever came when you were jumping either too far forward and seeing all the things that could go wrong <laughs> or you were living in the past thinking about you know, all the mistakes you might have made that you want to try to avoid to make now. And that would just sort of send this anxiety spin uh, very quickly. And so I remember sitting on the start line just going to myself, how awesome is this? Like, I've got the best rowing partner in the world. I've got a great boat. You know, the starters are there. The people have put the boys out in the course. They've got a great group of competitors to race against. And just that sense of, I suppose, gratitude for everything that's there, that changed it dramatically. And, and, and for me, I couldn't help but be in the moment there and then. And interesting enough, we talk about flow or being in the zone in sport. That particular race, and, and like the 96 experience, I remember having so much of the race unfold where time sort of seemed to slow, physicality didn't seem to be uh, as, um, as, as, as hard or as intense as what it had been. And so there's a softening, I think, when you're in the moment where you're not judging all the things that are happening, you're just letting them be. And, um, and it's not to be esoteric, but it is certainly to sort of realise that we are high-processing people, cognitive people, and, um, and often we're processing about things that aren't actually happening right here, right now. And that brings something into the here and now that maybe we don't need. Robbo, I think it's fair to say that Drew has just scored his fourth goal. It is It is true to say that, and it also reminded me of a funny story. An old um, footy mate of mine, g'day Matt Spicer, um, used to turn up to uh, to the footy ground before we play a game, and he would grab some of the dirt off the field and rub it between his hands, and has since always complained that the riders of Gladiator stole his thing, because when Russell Grow <laughs> used to enter the stadium, that was exactly what he would do too. <laughs> <laughs> that's gold. Love that's it. gold. Yeah. So he's he earned himself. <laughs> yeah, that's well. That was it. That he always because he, he was a he he was a, a country boy and moved down to Sydney and um, was working down here and that's how I met him playing at Gordon and yeah he used to just used to love the feel of the dirt between his hands and when we'd go out to warm up that was the first thing you would do grab a handful of dirt and just stand there for a second and settle himself and rub the dirt between his hands. Yeah, and I think I think that that that's a perfect example and I think Gary your question about even presentations and facilitation or different things, PNC meetings and all that sort of stuff. I think many people walk into those situations with so much stuff on their minds yeah. and just like the guy walking out of the footy field or the athlete uh, paddling up to the start line of the race in a rowing, um, there's so much going on and, and ultimately if you've 
prepared and done everything you can, you can't actually change anything now. And so you know, putting your hand in the dirt, putting your hand in the water, um, wriggling your toes and your shoes, taking a deep, slow breath and realizing you've actually got time to do these things and, and part of these things are the way to reconnect and just um, embed yourself. I, I think that sort of stuff's awesome and, and there's simple, tangible things anyone mm. can do with what they're doing. I think it's great. I, I love that, Drew. Is there a defining moment that you can remember through your career, Drew, that has helped shape you as a man? Um, it, would, it would really be that 1999 championships and not so much the race, not so much the start line, um, but it was actually a couple of days before and, and probably to give a bit of context, it was probably the experience with James where we'd come out of the fall, we'd been trying as a, as a group even with Mike and Nick to get the fall going against the Sydney. Um, there was that sense of impending pressure that you know, Sydney was going to be a home Olympic Games and you know, the awesome force and had to be there and all that sort of stuff and all of a sudden the reality was starting to set in that maybe we weren't going to get our awesome force and boat back on the water again. And I remember being overseas with James in, in the pair combination and um, realising for myself that uh, there was so much to learn and there were so many great experiences to have without being tied to this um, preconceived idea of being in a certain boat and doing a certain thing at a home Olympic Games. And I remember one day sitting um, beside a tree out in this uh, university setting and I'd been reading a couple of different books and I found myself just sitting out there and just sort of taking notice of the trees and the grass and yeah, there were some students walking around and, and I'd, I'd done a bit of thinking about various things and just the thing that I realised was all of a sudden, you know, I, I'd always been an athlete before that point but I never really thought that I was as capable as others and I never really thought that, you know, maybe I had the talents or um, all the skills but I'd been sort of lucky to make the awesome force and a couple of years before I was sort of lucky to be running with a guy like James, I was lucky to be coached with a guy like that. And, um, and all of a sudden I just remember sitting there realising and going, it actually doesn't matter. None of that sort of matters. It doesn't matter how I've come to the point. Um, and, and I remember sort of sitting there thinking, you know, wow, the world is so different when you sort of take, I suppose, the pressure off yourself and, um, and stop, you know, and stop assuming that you don't have what maybe, um, maybe others have and all that sort of stuff. And that was a turning point for me because I went into that world championships with such a different mindset and it really set up so many things. I think in future, where I started to realise that almost anything really was possible on the water, but also in the team setting off the water as well. More gold. Hey, uh, Drew, just on that, uh, I read a quote by a lady called Anne Frank, who was a German-born lady who wrote a very famous book. I think it was called The Diaries of Anne Frank. It was about being... uh, a stowaway or hiding during the Holocaust. And it was a, a very popular book. I think I made it into a movie. And the quote said, everyone has inside himself a piece of good news. The good news is that you really don't know how great you can be, how much you can love, what you can accomplish and what your potential is. And to me, that quote sums up what you just talked about by sitting at the university and the process you went through in your mind. Have you ever broken that down to look at what the steps are that you could recommend to somebody who doesn't appreciate the good news is inside them to help them find that good news? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? So one, a great quote. Um, I've probably been going through a little bit of stuff with my kids at the moment where my daughter's 15 and my my son's 11 and... um, and probably I've been 
challenged a lot to sort of go, how do you take that end experience um, of feeling like you've um, you realised something about yourself and about the possibilities of people on the planet and all that sort of stuff, and how do you how do you help your kids see that? And and I think that notion of breaking it down and being able to try, try to find some triggers or some steps, um, whether or not they're, they're sequential or they operate in parallel, I'm not sure, but certainly I've probably been trying to find with my kids that little example of uh, noughts and crosses and saying to them, you know, it doesn't matter um, what you're thinking and what you're feeling, but can you work out where on the noughts and crosses um, table it sits? And so if you think about um, noughts and crosses being in front of you on a page, um, the top of the page is future, the back of the page is past. Um, so the left-hand side, for example, might be negative and the right-hand side might be positive. And I think one of the great first steps is to be able to work out what sort of thoughts and feelings you're having about yourself or about the world and then being able to sort of plot it um, either abstract-wise uh, in your mind or, or physically on a bit of paper. And certainly with my son, it's, it's been a really interesting exercise because I've recognised anxiety in him you know, before every little kid, before they do a, a music rehearsal at school or they have to speak in front of their class or whatever it is. And that whole thing of just slow down, buddy, you know, take notice of what your thoughts and, and feelings are and can you see them in this field um, which sort of probably represents you know, the way he's uh, perceiving things. And once you see that, can you sort of flip it? And so the interesting part for me working um, with people over many, many years, the first step is, can you be aware of it? You know, can you be aware of what those thoughts and feelings are? Can you tag them in some way? And can you then see that that thought or feeling can quite, uh, quite simply be the opposite? So if you are sort of projecting forward and thinking negatively, well, you can project forward and think positively, can't you? You can flip that. And, and if you're projecting forward and seeing it positively or negatively, you can actually sort of back the other way and sort of go, well, what are the past experiences that suggest it's either positive or negative? And so even for, I know, with the kids, you know, helping them realise they've actually got control of that perception, even though sometimes they don't think they do, which actually then leads to them having a lot of control over their um, emotional state, where often they think the emotions are happening to them. And so for me, I, I don't know if it's a breaking it down, but it's certainly about providing... Um, a framework to be able to sort of see what's going on. And, and I know for myself that was the exercise I went through was I used to find I did a lot of um, forward-orientated thinking, you know, very active in that sort of space and um, always thinking about, you know, what can I do, how can I do it and all that sort of stuff. But I did notice a lot of the time I'd spin into a negative thing which would actually stop me from doing things. I'd find I'd procrastinate or I'd, I'd, I'd tell myself I couldn't do it, I'd tell myself it wasn't possible. And so... I suppose the, the simple step for me was be aware of it first, and then second step was could you flip it? You know, could you just change your perspective on that and see it another way? And often when we're charged with emotions, it's really hard. So you know, that ability to sort of step back and use a bit of a framework like that is really helpful. What a powerful thing to talk to kids about. That's uh, that's beautiful, man. I'm going to throw one out there while we're talking about dealing with kids, um, but I mean, I think this applies to everybody. Dealing with success, like having having a group of kids or a kid or personal success in anything you do, and it's something I spoke about with Simon Madden um, a couple of weeks ago, the AFL footballer, and I'm interested in your thoughts in in managing success. Like if you're doing really well at something, that can also be as hard as managing a mental state when you're sort of putting negative thoughts on yourself too, can't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I think the thing is... Um Doing, doing well at something or, or being perceived to do well or doing poorly at something or being perceived to do poorly, I think they're both a curse, mm. if, if you know what I mean. So, so 
the notion is, like, when you see kids, and I've seen it time and time again, and I watched it going through school myself, was that you had some kids that were sensational. They were great at athletics. Um, they were great at swimming. They were great at football. But they were also not only seen that they were great at and developing that confidence in themselves, but they were also being told by everyone they were great at it. And then the results also suggested that they were the best in their class and whatever it is. problem I, I saw with that was all those kids eventually... Um, uh, either fell over, either failed, um, stopped enjoying it. You know, something strange really occurred when they started either getting beaten by others or the perception of them somehow shifted really quickly. Um, and so, and, and just like the kid who thinks they can't do anything, you know, that, that's, that's really sad as well. So the thing for me, I think the overinflated or the suppressive sort of stuff is a real problem. And, and having worked in the the school system, uh, 2001 to five, with uh, a group called Blue Earth Institute, where we were helping kids become physically active. It was amazing how many kids either had an overinflated idea about how good they were, and therefore they wouldn't listen to instructional guidance or take things on, or other kids had a very suppressed view of themselves, and so as a result, they just couldn't see for themselves that it was even possible. And I saw both as, as just as damaging for kids. Um, one might have been more immediate in the here and now as to you know, dis- disengaging or disconnecting or, or not even trying. But the other one was a bit more of a future thing that you'd see happen, which was 16, 17 years of age, kids who were very, very capable, very good, really enjoying what they were doing, all of a sudden were super challenged by that when it wasn't going their way. And so, um, and I've seen that happen with athletes as well. You know, first time overseas after they've been the, the big fish in the, the pond in Australia and all of a sudden they come 14th at a World Juniors regatta yeah. Yeah. Uh, in rowing and they're struggling to put it in perspective and they don't think that they can get there. You know, and that's where I said at the start, but that ability to persist and commit and stay and keep following through, that's the mark of people, I think, who eventually get it because um, they can work through those scenarios and they need good support around them. So all the kids that I've seen that situation, I think the, the parents who push the inflation, that's a challenge, that's a problem. And, and the parents who all, or the teachers who also um, push the suppression on some of these kids, that's an issue as well. Why can't we just see kids for what they are? You know, anything's possible for them, really, when we think about it. You know? and, uh, and I know with my kids, it's, it's frustrating when people are signing off on what they're going to be doing in the future. And you sort of go, really? Like, they're 11 years of age or they're 15 years of age. So much is going to change. We've all seen it in our lives, haven't we? There's a sign that goes around the footy fields um, on a Sunday when we play, and it says um, the refs are human, you know, the coaches are parents, blah, 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 blah. And the very last one says, these are kids. And that's all it says is, you know, it's, th- yeah. it's like points to remember. Yeah, and I think that's the most important one, but I I've also think it's the one that most parents miss. Because, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99.9% of the time, parents are well-behaved, parents don't abuse the ref. But you see little Johnny come off the field and the first thing dad does is go over and go, what was the story with a missed tackle over there and and all this sort of stuff? And, and I think, for me, that's a really big one. I think the point you're, you're making there, and, and probably the elephant in the room, I think, in sport in general, is we're just not very tolerant. And when we're on the sidelines, we assume it's much easier than what it is. So... You're right, refs make mistakes, coaches make mistakes, players make mistakes. Now, if these players are kids, we know they make mistakes. Mm. And yet, to not be tolerant or to jump on those things is crazy. So, um, while I was head coach for the national team, uh, first couple of years after, after, um, after London, the thing I found with a lot of our athletes, particularly when we had three quarters of the athletes in the group in South Korea that first year were all first-time senior athletes, was they were scared to make mistakes. And so as much as they were good because they got through the system and they'd made it on the national team finally, 
that not only fear of failure, but just not even the common practice and understanding that, you know what, you've actually got to be able to try things, fall over, explore it, bounce back. And so we talked about then changing the culture of the team to a learning culture rather than a performance culture. And, and I think when you think about primary school kids, even secondary school kids, the focus on performance, um, for me, is a bit diabolical in one sense, particularly when most kids aren't really going to go through a life of high-level high competition. So for most kids, it's actually about meaningful and enjoyable physical activity. So to make it not about learning and make it about a result and then jump on things when people make mistakes, um, you know, I've seen it now basketball as well. You know, parents actually... Yeah, making points about the referee to the kids after the game and you sort of sit there and say, what sort of example are we setting up there? And and, and, and and then you see it later on in life where people are making excuses about all sorts of things and you go, no, it's not. Like, just do the best you can, learn from it. Everyone's got to learn from the process they're in. It's halftime on the Mojo Show and time to pause. For a cause. Hi, this is Simon Madden. Uh, my cause at the moment is a cure for motor neuron disease. Uh, a good friend of mine, ex-player, uh, Neil Denneher, is, is uh, uh, one of the Denneher brothers and he's part of it. And he actually has it and he's working really hard to find a cure. So look up the cure for motor neuron disease and uh, see if you can put some money into it. The Mojo Radio Show. Right, I just want to camp out on learning for a second. If, if we look back through your career as an Olympian... Olympic gold, world champs. You recently had a crack at the 24-hour cycling challenge, I guess. Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the stupid challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and, Rob, I get this. So the idea is that Drew rides around and around basically a velodrome outside right. for 24 hours. Outside the, the velodrome? Is that what you yeah, mean? Like, like in a velodrome, but outside. Outdoor velodrome, yeah. Outdoor velodrome. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right, yep. And he rides around and around, and the person who can go the furthest in 24 hours is crowned the the winner, right? Like the record holder. So, Drew, how far did you go in that time? In that 24 hours, outdoor velodrome, going around and around in 24 hours, how far did you ride? 836 kilometres. Wow. 836 <laughs> kilometres. Sydney, Melbourne, basically. But, but let's, let's put it in perspective, Gary. So 2,604 laps <laughs> of an old concrete velodrome. Uh, when I said it was the stupid exercise, it was a stupid exercise. There's three current records um, in endurance cycling after 24 hours. One is an indoor track record, an outdoor track record, an outdoor road record. Um, and so, yeah, so the challenge was for Tour de Cure and, and to raise funds um, was to have a go at the outdoor track record. Um, and it wasn't so much doing it because it was the record that I felt I was going to have the best chance at. It was we could find a venue <laughs> and, uh, and it was going to be contained, it was going to be safe and all that sort of stuff and we couldn't actually find a road venue. So, yeah, 836 kilometres, but disheartening when you see your Garmin showing a distance of 863 at the end of it all and you're going, have oh, I not ridden that track very well efficiency-wise? <laughs> I'm, su- I'm surprised a BMX bike would have a Garmin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, Drew, it, it's extraordinary effort. I mean, uh, it, it's just mind-blowing how you would mentally go through that. I'm curious to know that, and we've talked about this a fair bit, you... You get off the bike, now you've had some time to process it, look back. What have you, go back to learning, what did you learn about yourself since that attempt? Oh, the thing that came up 
for me at the end of it all. I, I, I sensed it going in, and I and I really did hope that I would have the kind of experience I did. But you just never know. I mean, that's part of the reality of these mm. things. Um, I learnt that I like everyone I know. We're just so much more capable than what we realised. What I realised. Um, go back three years. I mean, we we talked and. We cracked jokes in our cycling group about doing some long rides, you know, 200Ks and all that sort of stuff. And those jokes became, okay, we'll do a 24-hour team event, which was the Oppie Audax uh, that we've now done twice. And and then to sort of have that evolution of sort of thinking, but the thinking only evolved because of the actions we were taking and then the learnings that were coming out of it. So the ultimate thing was learning that I was much more mentally stronger than I ever gave myself credit for. and And... I know that sounds strange coming from someone who's been to Olympic Games and all that sort of stuff, but the thing for me was the ability to just to stay on point, and, and it's not perfect, you know, so I, I gave up mentally a few times during it. I mean, physically I didn't stop, but mentally I gave up a few times during it. Um, mentally I had myself wander many, many times. Um, I had excuses, complaints going on, um, but what I learned was the fact that even with all that, crap going on in my mind and even with all the stuff going on in my body, just the ability to have a very clear um, aim, which was to complete 24 hours to see how far I could go. I, I had a target of um, 890 kilometres, so I, I didn't get there. But the thing for me was having that, having a greater sense of purpose, you know, by supporting a great cause and also having the connection to the team on the, on the track. So there were so many drivers that... If one started to fail, you know, which was, say, my internal push to make it to the end, if that started to fail, I'd just focus on the team at the side of the track and say, well, what have I got to do for them? You know, what have they got to do for me? If that started to fail, I'd just think about the bigger purpose of it all. And, and then when that sort of disappeared and wind of time, I then come back to saying, no, no, this is really about me getting to the end. And so what I learned by having, I suppose, this three-pronged attack, um, or connections to things that were quite meaningful and energising, it meant that whenever one of those resources started to sort of um, drain or whenever they started to become tenuous, I had another go-to. And so in the 24-hour period, what I learnt was that's the way to go. And what I also learnt was, you know, by having a challenge like that, that for me made me super nervous and anxious in the weeks leading up to it, had me quite scared as to what it was going to take. Um, I was really blown away with just the mental, emotional, physical capability of myself, but also of anyone doing that sort of stuff. And I suppose the the checkpoint for me is realising that so many more people could get out of their comfort zone if they just realised what was possible by by doing it that way. You know, don't just do it for yourself. Do it for your friends and family. Don't just do it for yourself and friends and family. Do it for a greater cause. You know, do it to make a difference in your community. And so... Um, we're much more capable, I think, when we tap into that as an energy source. Mate, that's brilliant. Uh, I've always been, as I said, when I first interviewed you and spoke to you, Drew, I told you how impressed I am with rowers in general. Having looked at the rowing sport and the guys at the top level, how much dedication, how it's said to use pretty much every muscle in the body, a lot of them have got professional careers as well as the, the rowing career. It really is quite extraordinary what they go through. I'm impressed by the discipline that goes into the sport. With that in mind, do you have now any non-negotiables, whether it be rituals, routines, non-negotiables in your world now that no matter what, this has to happen? Um, probably what has been the carryover from the sport is um, I've, got to have physical, I've got to have a physical outlet and, um, and 
you know, right now for a little while now has been my cycling. And so in my mind, the not negotiable, I suppose, in that regard is a certain amount of activity each week um, is just critical, critical. And so it keeps me, um, it keeps me sane is, is what I would sort of say. And I think my family recognise that as well. And um, you know, the wife's one of the first ones to support the idea of get out on the bike and go for a ride. And um, in my mind, if I'm doing about eight to 10, 12 hours a week in that sort of range, um, I feel like it keeps me in a, in a much better mental headspace for things. Um, it gives me that physical outlet it keeps a bit of the routine in the week um, because obviously my kind of work that I do has a lot of um, variability and so to have that, that, that structure or that routine to the week where I know that I'm going to be on the bike on the road you know, two or three times and I know that I'm going to be on the indoor trainer, particularly when the weather's not great, um, it just gives me that sense of a thread for the week and to know that I can push myself physically two or three times in the week and really extend the energy, energy and, and just get that sort of stuff out of the system um, and also have the sessions where, you know, you're just cruising along and you finish it and you've got a really good sort of feeling in Dawkins Wild and all that sort of stuff. The other part that comes with it is knowing that I'm out with people who are all thinking the same sort of way two times a week uh, in group rides. So what I got from rowing over all those years was, was that understanding that I need that and I think a lot of us need that, most of us need that on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, it's a not negotiable for me to make sure I keep getting that. And, and I think it's a good example for my family, but it's also um, a great example for anyone that I'm working with is that, you know, to make time for an extra eight hours a week, um, even when we're busy and all that sort of stuff, to do physical stuff um, and, and do it physical and social um, is just essential. And, you know, and maybe down the track it'll be a different activity for me, I'm not sure, but at the moment cycling is the one that I know that I can do that pretty efficiently. You've, you've been at the top level, you've been world class in now a number of disciplines. If you look into the future, Drew, with whether it be sport, business, life, whatever, is there something else in your mind that you'd like to be world class at in the future? Yeah, look, I think um, probably that I, I want to see some changes, uh, like, in the world that I live in. And so I think, you know, working out how to have the skill set, um, the knowledge, the network, all that sort of stuff to be able to do those things is really paramount. And so um, I, I don't like I don't like politics because of the way it's done. But I do like the idea of serving others and, and standing up for a cause and um, and being able to make a difference with um, you know, the, the, the collective power of more people getting on board with an idea or um, or a focus, and so for me, you know, what I see is what I've done in sport has been a progression of developing those skills that were very much about being in the boat and about working with small teams. And I want to continue to further that. And so, yeah, I like the idea of it either being a business or an organisation like a charity or whatever it is, where you can actually have a very clear purpose and drive to make a bigger difference with people. So it's not just bottom line dollars, um, but it's much more about the influence and impact you have on the world around you. And yeah, I'm pretty passionate about things that are sustainable and things that are innovative, and so I like the idea of being able to see that the skill set I've developed so far is that if it's the next five years or ten years, that I can continue to progress into a space where I'm getting a chance to do that um, with others who are also passionate about that. And um, you know, I want to see some of the significant things in the world change. Um, I, I hate the idea that there's poverty in the world. I accept that it's a reality of the world we're currently in, but I love the idea of a future where that's not the case. 
um, I think of the diseases like cancer that we've been focused on with Tour to Cure, and I sort of go, you know what, I, I know there'll always be another thing that pops up. It seems to be the human condition, but how do we ensure that we support others to have the smarts, have the skills to be able to um, get the breakthroughs, make the differences, and, you know, and, and really show them that there's a way of doing it that's smart and also efficient. You know? So the thing for me, I, I look at some of the stuff that's going on right now and there seems to be so many dispersed um, and different views about how to solve problems. And I just like the idea of you know, how do we come together and do things collectively? How do we come together and unify um, on some of these key things for the world? And I, and I think, you know what, if, if the world got passionate about making certain changes... We wouldn't be able to turn it around overnight, but we certainly could make big inroads into some of the things that are really causing, I suppose, um, lack of harmony in the world or um, illness, ill health and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, looking for that sort of platform and growing into that sort of space is probably critical for me. Um, I, I like the idea of making a difference in the world. It's very nice, mate. Admirable. I say what, that's, uh, that is a really nice way to, to finish the show, buddy. I just, I've got one quick question, Drew, just on... Um before I, I'm going to hand to Robbo for the big question. So we've been warming you up. We've been putting you through your paces in the, on the warm-up boat. We haven't got to the big, the big one yet, so I'm going to leave that to Robbo in a second. The big question. Um, what's the first hour of your day look like? Are you a ritualised or routine person from the start of your day? Um, no, no. There's, there's a couple of variations I have. One is I can get up and go for an early morning bike ride with the group of guys that I ride with, girls. Um, and that's usually a 5.30 start. The other one is getting up at sort of sometimes just after seven uh, when the kids are stirring the house and um, enjoy sitting down having a coffee. And what I tend to do at the start of the day is, um, yeah, if I'm working remotely in particular, I like to just clear the emails and just read up on stuff that's been happening. Um, and for me then, you know, look forward to sort of 10 o'clock in the morning starting to make the phone calls and maybe get made to clients and uh, working that way. I find that um, I love walking my, my, my son to school um, and so yeah, 8.30 in the morning I often get a chance to do that. So if I'm not out doing something um, on the bike, doing exercise, then the simple routine is yeah, up around 7, having coffee, you know, clearing emails, walking to school, coming back and then really getting stuck into the day. Um, the, the more critical part of the routine is I love exercising in the afternoon or evening and, and just sort of find that when I've had a really good productive day, I love just the ability to sort of feel satisfied in the fact that you know, I've got a lot of stuff done and, uh, and can go out and do some bike riding or whatever it might be, um, or even if I had a stressful day. You know, often I find myself sometimes get to 8.30 at night and sort of you know, look at my wife and sort of say, I might just go downstairs and jump on the train for half an hour, just as a way of disconnecting. So, so there's a few options I probably use, and, uh, and, and for me it's about sort of utilising that. If I'm on the road working, presenting or facilitating, um, that's a lot harder to do. And so, yeah, just even going for a walk or a job in the morning for me is a great way to start the day in, in those sort of environments. Sweet. Robbo, hit him, mate. Hit him up. Hit him you up. Reckon? Go hard. Yeah, go hard, son. Go hard. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Get in the ruck. Going to put a bit of a limp tint on that this week. Oh, mate, this, um, this is a bit controversial. Yeah, mate, tell you what. <laughs> Everyone's looking up going, what? <laughs> mate, mate, my usual question would be to you that if you sort of, you woke up in the morning and you jumped out of bed and you sort of weren't feeling it today, what would be the song you'd put on in the car? But I want to know this and I'm really interested. What was the first song on your mixtape that you put on in your headphones as you were warming up for the Olympic final? Oh, good question. <laughs> Good question. Billy Thorpe, most people are cool. Think that I'm crazy. Oh, really? There you go. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know what time. 
because there's, there's one really cool from the age six. Uh, I don't know why I love them, but I just love them. Um, I think when I was a young kid, so that sort of soundtrack, that sort of generational soundtrack must have been on the background a lot. Uh, and also there's an old uh, old surfing movie of the guy surfing at Burley Heads and uh, that soundtrack on in the background. Uh, Michael Peterson and a few other guys, you know, early days carving up Burley Heads. And so for some reason that just has always resonated with me. And uh, Billy Thorpe from the Aztecs with Social One, I think I'm crazy, is probably the one. There you go. <laughs> Hey, Drew, can I just ask you one, one final question, mate? And I'm just curious. <laughs> is there ever a time where you're at home by yourself and you grab a gold medal that you've won at the Olympics and you just <laughs> hold it in your hand and go, that's actually mine and I did that. Like this is, this is not a dream. This is reality. This is actually, this is mine and I did it. Is that... Do you, I just wonder whether Olympians ever have that moment where it all dies down, there's just that quiet moment you go, wow, I did it. I actually did this. It's mine. No one can take this off me. Does that ever happen? <laughs> it's, oh, look, it happened early days, admittedly. Um, what I do find, and I'm sure it probably happens to many Olympians, when you come home after that first gold or that first medal, uh, yeah, it takes months for it to sink in and then it takes years for you to really get perspective on it and, and I was no different to anyone in that regard. What I do find now, I suppose, the way um, I, I see that is I often take the medals to school visits or even corporate events um, when I'm invited along in a certain um, in a certain role. And so I have that thought of, wow, I did that when someone else is holding it. Yeah. And yeah. you can see the way you can see the way the person's looking at it and they're marvelling at it and they're taking it in and they're I don't know, they're having this realisation of holding something that's very symbolic of um, uh, all the striving, all the effort, all the work, and just watching their facial expression. It turned, I have not seen a person hold a gold medal and not look like a kid again. You know, that childlike sort of uh, dreamy sort of state. And, and to have them turn to you after that and ask you some of the simplest but most yeah. profound questions, mm-hmm. um, that for me is when you sort of sit there and go, wow, I, I, I was a part of that. That's, that's yeah. something I've done and that's something they're now getting a chance to um, you know, sit with and think about. So, I think. so that, that's the special moment. It's not, yeah, it's not at home pulling out the medals, but it's certainly in those moments when you're out and I- about. And I don't, can I just say, I don't think it's childlike. Um, my, my oldest son and his footy team, our footy team, won the, uh, the Sydney competition last year. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I walked into the bedroom, knocked on the door and opened the door. And, and there's Jack, my now 12-year-old, standing in front of the mirror with his winner's medal on, <laughs> posing in front Aww, of the mirror. That's gold. That's gold. <laughs> that is that is better than doing your hair, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But you know, Robbo, I've got the perfect. This is this is the biggest idea to come out of this. this, this in the history of this program, oh, yes, Drew has just landed us with a cracking idea. Yeah. Okay, listen to this: gold soap on a rope. Yes, I'm with you. That's that's our <laughs> yeah. that's our Olympic medal. So when people get the gold soap on a rope in the shower, that's they it. go. Yeah, I did, I did it. it. Whatever it, it is. <laughs> Whatever it is. Now, now, let's not think about how they could be used wrong, but where do we get those made? Oh, <laughs> oh no, we're on to that. We've, it's we've, other we've, works. We've, we've, we've become all rock and roll, mate, since you last spoke to Gary. We've got, oh, ourselves, yeah. we've got ourselves a Russian merch chick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
There you go. Yeah. So, so there you go. So listen, uh, we've already promised one to Buzz from Ganga Gene, but mate, I reckon um, as long as you promise to put it inside the cabinet next to the gold medal, <laughs> I reckon we might send you one as well. <laughs> look, look, look I, I'll, I'll guarantee you, if you send me something like that, I'll be able to get a shop with all the medals on. There, there, there you go. And we can put it up on the Facebook bang, page. Bang, Done. There it is. Booyah. Booyah. <laughs> touchdown. We make miracles happen. I'm, I'm going to yeah. ring Oksana as soon as we finish this call. I'm ringing Oksana. I'm saying we now need a gold. We know what we want. That's it. And uh, you're you're on the VIP list, buddy. That's that that is gold. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Can you imagine doing the corporate event where you, you come out, you pull, I have to do my stuff, so you pull the four medals out and there's a, there's, a, there's a soap in there as well and they're looking at your strength to go and put this for. Uh, Drew Wiggett, I'm going to organise a, uh, I'm going to organise a gig before the end of the year as a fundraiser for Tour de Cure and you and I are going to do that. We're going to have, well, I, I won't have any medals to show, but you can pull out your, uh, your three gold and your, uh, and, your and, and it's going to be a microphone. It'll be a gold microphone for the Mojo Radio Show. That'd be, oh. Love it. That is just sensational. All right. On it. Fantastic. <laughs> Drew, I got to say, mate, you are not only just an impressive man in general, but as, a, as a, an Olympian, a sportsman, a celebrity, you're such a good guy. You are such a pleasure to ride with in the Tour de Cure. I think what you're doing to help others and to serve others is just uh, cracking. And that was a terrific show, buddy. And, and to have you back on and, and we dug for some more gold and you certainly delivered, buddy. So um, thank you so much for your time. It was good, Rabbi. Indeed, absolutely awesome. But um, I expected that. I've, and can I just say, mate, just going back to your last chat with Gary, um, it doesn't make the boat go faster. I um I passed that on to uh, to some special eleven uh, year old kids over the weekend who who no. I went to the state championships with and um we didn't use does it make the boat go faster but we used does it help the team and um no, they, that? They, they were walking away saying it at the end of the day which was awesome so that's yeah, awesome. it was nice mate, to hear. that's great to hear mate. Go to the prize cupboard, grab yourself a gold microphone, buddy. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is gold, my friend. That's a great way to finish the show. Indeed, mate. Thanks, Drew. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. That was another Olympic-sized show. Well, it was, and we know that our audience loves anything to do with Olympians, Olympic mm. thinking, performance, mm. productivity, and that guy, honestly, he... Um, He's a very, very impressive dude and he's just lovely to be around. And, yeah. and everything you hear on the show, he's exactly the same way at any given point of a day, regardless of how tired or busy he is. He mm. uh, has always got a smile on his face and he's got so much energy. So uh, he's, to sum it up, he's a guy who's got his mojo working and uh, yeah. a delight to uh, have him on the show. Um, a lot of people like Drew Ginn, uh, mm. which is a rough transition into... <laughs> oh, I can see where you're going. That's where I like the Mojo Radio Show. A couple of likes who came through on our Facebook post. I'll put a, a, a shout-out to uh, Michael Baird and um, Peter Price. Yes. For getting in touch, liking what we do. Nice. Thanks, boys. Thanks, nice fellas. to have you on board. Absolutely. Now, speaking of liking, I'm, uh, I'm liking a bit of uh, Pixar thinking this week. Mm. They, uh, they recently posted an article uh, online, Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. Now, we'll post the whole lot on the show notes, but number 12 caught my eye and I thought you might like this one too. Uh, number, rule number 12 says, discount the first thing that comes to mind and the second, third, fourth and fifth. Get the obvious out of the way, then surprise yourself. Mm. I thought that was a nice one. It's very true and it's, it ties back to the brainstorming model as invented by Alex Osborne and Sid Parnes back in the 60s when they worked at NASA. Mm. And when you are setting up a traditional brainstorm 
to do it properly. One of the guidelines, not a rule, but a guideline for people, either yourself and or a group of people to follow is defer judgment and go for big lists. Mm. And brainstorming as invented is about building big lists. And in order to do that, you need to defer judgment up front. What typically happens and what a lot of people are being conditioned to do is they find one idea and they just run with it. Or they have an idea, somebody else has an idea, and somebody in the room poo-poos it, and automatically you lose the vibe of the brainstorm. By deferring judgment and building lists, which is the essence of brainstorming, the idea is that even if you love the first idea that comes out, you should spend the time, half an hour, an hour and a half, day, two days, or Einstein would spend years thinking about what else, what else, what else, what else, what else, to mm. explore all the possibilities. Because once you have all the possibilities, then you can go back and pick out the ideas you think are the sexy ideas. And traditionally, my experience of having done facilitation for groups for 20 odd years in strategy and brand and marketing and everything else is, your best ideas always come in the last third of your brainstorm. Because the first third to your story, to Pixar's point, is just the obvious stuff being dumped. The second third, you tend to dig into ideas and you start to get creative. By the third third, you're throwing everything up against a wall, hoping something will stick. <laughs> you just want to get it done. You're throwing out outlandish ideas because you're running, you're starting to dig down now for stuff. That's where the real juice is. So there is a lot of science behind that. And if you go back to somewhere in the world, as we speak right now, there's a brainstorm happening. If it's being run properly, it is about building big lists and coming up with hundreds of ideas or dozens of ideas, giving it some time, letting it sit there, pondering it, throw it around, collaborate, defer judgment, don't start judging your ideas straight away. So um, I, I reckon it's a really nice piece. And I think if you look at how Pixar took on the greats of the world of animation, the success they've had, uh, they certainly know what they're talking about. <laughs> yes, I don't think you can argue with success, really, can you? <laughs> they've done good. They've done all right. They've done all right. Yeah, they've done all right. Now, speaking of arguing with success, I don't think you can argue with the success of um, of Don Fogarty and his mates when they came up with Fortunate Son, can you? Which we uh, we did play mm. on the Mojo Radio Show where we had uh, Fogarty and the boys from Foo Fighters, the version I found in the library, which I yep. just thought was brilliant. So what have you got for us to close? Well, we were talking about the Daisy's new album and they've actually done their own version. Uh, oh, really? Coming, yeah, on the new album coming out in August. So um, I reckon, just to give everyone a bit of a squeeze, we might use that as our playout song this week, eh? Uh, now, the album's not out yet. Are you telling me that this is a Mojo Radio Show exclusive oh, sneak Oh, it might be. Peak? It might be a bit of a sneak peek, maybe, yeah. Shh, just don't tell Kat their PR lady, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, in that case, we're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.